Okay, I believe I believe I'm unmuted, so I'm just going to go ahead and launch. Um, I hope I hope we've all been paying attention to the things we've been singing and the scriptures read. And uh, out of John 20 that Joe read for us, uh, looking at the disciples. Uh, again, it's always amazing that after everything Jesus had said, we can go back in the Gospels and see where Jesus warned them of the things he was going to suffer. He warned them that he would actually have to die. He warned them that he was going to be arrested and crucified. He even told them the specifics of his death, that he would be crucified. And they weren't hearing it. We even have that moment where Peter tried to stop it where he said that God forbid that that should happen. And Jesus, again, admonished him to choose the purposes of God instead of the, the purposes of men. And it's amazing that even here uh, in John 20, even after their three and a half years with Jesus, and even after the women are coming and telling them, that Jesus was not in the tomb, that there were angels there telling them that do not look for the living among the dead. And it still says in verse 9 of John 20, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And if Jesus had, if Jesus had simply died, His purpose of being the sacrifice would have been fulfilled. That God could have crushed him under the judgment for our sin. His sacrifice could have been perfect and complete on our behalf. But God is working on several larger things that we get to look at. And that we get to, to take out of celebrating this day of resurrection. And one of the simple things is that God had in prophecy clarified that the Messiah would not be held in the grave. That when, when King David had prophesied that you will not allow me to suffer decay and the grave will not hold me, David was not talking about David. And Peter on the day of Pentecost even says, we even have David's tomb. David is still dead. But that David was prophesying of Messiah, his descendant Messiah. And that God in Isaiah 53 as well says that now after suffering that death and being crushed under the weight of our judgment, that Messiah would once again walk and share the bounty of his sacrifice with others. That he would gather the riches of the kingdom and share them with others. And that that prophecy that Jesus, the Messiah, would both die and be resurrected is God's final seal of approval and his final seal of identity, his final seal of acceptance and delight in the death of Jesus Christ, that his death was successful. He is the Messiah. But he also clarifies that in that death, Jesus has accomplished other victories. And in that resurrection, Jesus has accomplished other victories on our behalf. And the title for today's sermon is The King Triumphant. And I would like us to look just briefly, because we could spend hours, uh, literally, looking through 
all the things that were gained in the triumph of this death and this resurrection. But when Jesus triumphed in this resurrection, when he appeared to his disciples again, and he proved to them that he was alive, and, and we've talked about it plenty of times, that I think most of us would have been with Thomas, that this is a bizarre enough event, this is so outside the norm and outside the expected, that I'm not going to believe it just because you tell me. I'm not going to believe it until I see his hands and put my fingers in that nail hole and put my fingers into that spear hole in the side. And then Thomas believed when he saw. But one of the things that I want us to look at, four things we're going to look at, but one thing I want us to start with is, in a sense, one of the most obvious because it's one that's frequently frequently talked about and in ephesians chapter one we have this passage in verse seven in him we have redemption through his blood so again through his death what he's talking about was accomplished the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which we lavished on us. And first John 1 9, he reiterates that that he is faithful and just to forgive us. It's not a possibility now for those who put their faith in Christ. It is a certainty that we have forgiveness. He is faithful to do this. So that when Jesus triumphed over death and triumphed in his resurrection, he brought the evidence that our forgiveness is perfect and complete. And that we get, to, we get to accept that, that we are no longer guilty, we are no longer tarnished, we no longer stand before God identified by our sin. But as we'll see two or three times going through these brief passages together, Jesus went beyond forgiveness in his triumph over death and in his resurrection. In his restoration of life, Jesus went beyond our forgiveness because now he offers us something further. If you have your Bibles, and uh, by the way, if you say, oh no, I left my Bible at home, that won't be an excuse today. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, he made him who knew sin to be sin on our behalf, that was Jesus dying on the cross, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that in overcoming our sin and overcoming our guilt, not only does Jesus triumph over that by offering us forgiveness for that, but he goes majestically beyond that, almost in a way that we wouldn't have expected or conceived. Because now what Jesus offers all of us who put our faith in that death and resurrection is that now we are clothed and covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Now we are equipped to stand before God unashamed and, and to wear that righteousness. If you go to Philippians chapter 3, Paul adds it, Paul says it this way. In Philippians 3 9, he says, Whoops, that's 2 9, which is also a good verse. But in 3 9, he says this that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And there are so many believers who struggle with this truth. So this is a crucial truth for us to keep growing in. And, and if we barely understand it, to keep growing and understanding it. And, and as with everything we study and everything we look at the word together, that God's not simply willing that we agree with the doctrine that we're reading, but that it comes into our thinking, that it comes into our conversation, and that it also comes into our conversation not just on behalf of ourselves, but on behalf of every other believer, that husbands and wives and, and friends and mothers and fathers to their children and children to their mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters to their sisters and brothers, that we're acknowledging this with our thought life and then with our words, that every believer I'm looking at is covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that at my worst moment and your worst moment, this is part of the reason Jesus died for us, and this is part of what he gained through that death and resurrection, is we now stand genuinely righteous before God. Now, I'm also going to encourage you to recognize this. Jesus defeated the enemy. Jesus defeated Satan. And if you'll stay, if you'll go back to Ephesians 1, we have this in verses 19 and 23. He's telling us that he wants us to comprehend the, the power of God. And he says, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So that one of the things that God is, is declaring Jesus accomplished in his death, death and resurrection is that he towered in authority above Satan. That Jesus himself won that place of authority over every spiritual power, over every physical and earthly power. Jesus gained that position of power and authority. But there's another thing, again, that he goes beyond that. Because the Father had that position already. And, and we talked about this plenty of times. We need to remember this. Satan was a created being. He exists because God spoke him into existence. And he has no independent existence. Nobody does. Nothing does. Satan is a created being. He does not threaten the sovereignty of God. But in his death and resurrection, Jesus overcame Satan in his authority over this planet. When Adam and Eve sinned, they granted authority to Satan over their domain. God had granted them a domain over the earth and over their families and over their, their cultures. And they turned that authority over to the enemy who hated them. And now Jesus triumphs and rises to a position of authority for this planet over Satan. He regains what Adam and Eve lost, what they threw away, 
what they trashed, Jesus gains for us. But there's another layer in which he does this. If you'll turn to Colossians 2. Right after Philippians. In Colossians 2, he says this. When you were dead in your transgressions, starting in verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So part of that, your certificate of debt, my certificate of debt, is the listing of our sin. And that's already covered in, in forgiveness, that God had already removed the record of our guilt. But now this passage is taking to us to a deeper understanding of what was accomplished in that. Because now Jesus says, not only is he in authority above the enemy, but he took away the enemy's weapon. He disarmed the enemy. And we get to recognize that in this death and in this resurrection that we're celebrating, you and I are no longer subject to the authority and the accusations of Satan. And even when Satan quotes truth to us in the sense that he's telling reality about our sin, he has to deceive us into forgetting the power and authority of Jesus to remove the guilt of that sin, to remove the record of that sin, and to remove Satan's power to use it in accusation against us. Satan is now so completely disarmed, and, and we've talked about this many times, his only recourse now for believers is deception. He has to try to lie to us so that we would forget the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. That if he's going to crush us in condemnation, and that's where Romans 8, 1 and 2 comes in, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We are free from all the accusations and condemnations that the enemy would bring against us. We're free. And again, the challenge here is I need to remember that for the, for the sinners around me who are believers. I need to remember that they are free of condemnation. One of the things that, that comes up so frequently as I'm working with folks in counseling is the battle to believe this truth that we are free from condemnation when they're hearing that condemnation from other believers. So you and I get to determine, Father, not only do I want to believe these truths for myself, I want to make sure that I am a faithful servant of the truth, that when my, my wife, my husband, my son, my daughter, my parents, my friend, my enemy, that when someone who is a believer sins, I speak to them from this truth of forgiveness and righteousness and freedom from condemnation. That is one of the most powerful ways we take Easter into the entire year. One of the most powerful ways we take the truth that we're celebrating today into our lives and other people's lives 
is that we remember that the accuser has been silenced, both for ourselves, but we make sure our voice does not speak with the accuser in the lives of other believers. Now, there's another powerful thing. If you'll turn to Romans 6. Um, and I just, I wish we could spend a whole hour more on this one. But in Romans 6, we have this passage. Starting in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Listen to this. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So that when we're picturing Jesus at the cross, we're picturing Jesus dying on the cross more and more, seriously, more and more. Every time we see that image, every time we read of that image, every time we see a movie that shows that image, that you and I get to look at that cross and start praising God, Father, my own sin nature, the old me that had to sin. I want to agree with you, Father, that right there in Christ, my sin nature was crucified. And so that triumph of Jesus in his crucifixion, in his death, and then sealed by his resurrection, is that now you and I are not obligated to remain in sin. We have to contend with the flesh. We have to fight these battles. But we're no longer obligated to lose the battle. Before Christ, before this resurrect, before this crucifixion and resurrection, we were literally obligated to lose the battle with Satan. It was the only possible outcome. We were under his authority. His accusations were true, and, and they were effective against us. Now, his power to keep us in sin is also broken, that we are free to grow. And, and again, as, as we always talk about, I would encourage you, don't just hear that as a doctrine. Hear it for some struggle in your life. Hear it for some area where the enemy still seems to have effective power. Some area of habit, some area of thought, some area of behavior. That we're recognizing the power of this death and the, the majestic power of this resurrection. I mean, I now have the authority to turn to that area of sin in my life, to turn to that area of defeat in my life and say, Father, let's get to it. Let's start gathering truth and scripture. Let's start gathering fellowship and accountability. Let's start gathering reminders and an understanding of my position in Christ so that I operate from the death of my sin nature. But again, Jesus even goes past that. He goes beyond just crucifying my sin nature so that I'm no longer obligated to sin. So we have this passage in Galatians 5, which many of you are familiar with. And in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and actually I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it all the way to 25. So if you want to have that, 
because he says this, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, for those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So here's this incredible truth that God is giving us, is that now, not only am I not obligated to sin, I now have the equipping through this death, through this resurrection, and through this indwelling Jesus Christ, I actually have the authority and the power to be growing into the very character of Jesus Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is, is a brief summary. It's not the whole thing. It's just a small, brief summary of the character of Jesus Christ. And again, the challenge for, for each one of us is to look at that list and recognize, Father, where am I lacking in love? Where am I lacking in patience? Where am I lacking in joy? Where am I lacking in peace? And, and as we face all kinds of turmoil in our culture right now, in our finances, uh, even in relationships, so many things topsy-turvy and turned upside down and so many things broken apart and so many things uncertain that God is saying, this is the perfect time because this is a supernatural growth. This is the perfect time to be growing in peace and joy. That while there's so many pressures on our lives, this is the perfect time to be choosing that we will grow in love and patience and kindness. So that all these extra hours with all these imperfect people are an opportunity for growth in the very supernatural relationship that God makes possible for us, that we reflect the character of Christ. And if you'll turn to Second Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, in verses 3 and 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Seeing that his divine power, and again, that power was accomplished in his resurrection, that divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So there he's just saying it as, as clearly as he can say it. Not only have I defeated your sin, not only have I set you free from the power of sin, that now Jesus, through this death and resurrection, is equipping us to grow in his own divine nature. Th that should blow our minds. That should amaze us. It should humble us. And then it should empower us and motivate us to say, Father, if you're saying that's now possible, why am I content to live so easily with sin in my life? Why am I content to live so easily beneath my station? And again, that fits with what Paul says in, in Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, where he says, now live in a manner worthy of your calling. Keep aiming higher. Keep recognizing this death and this resurrection are not just in a historical event that we remember with honor, 
They mean something for my life. They mean something for my relationships. They mean something different for my thinking and my choosing and my behavior. Because you and I, you and I are now equipped to grow into the divine nature, to grow into the very character of Jesus Christ. And that is worth celebrating this resurrection today. And I, I trust there will be more moments and opportunities through the day where you keep remembering and celebrating this crucifixion and this resurrection and that this will be part of it. This resurrection is about my growth into the character of Jesus Christ. Now, there's one other area that I want to look at that Jesus specifically told us he was triumphing in. And if you'll turn to John chapter 16, verses 32 and 33. John 16, and 32 starts with this. He says, Behold, talking to his disciples, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each of you to his own home. And to leave me alone, and yet I'm not alone because the Father's with me. And these things, he's talking about all the things he's been teaching him. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So the, the final thing we're looking at, it's not the final thing we could like, but the final thing we're taking opportunity to look at this morning is Jesus is saying, I'm the king who has triumphed in this way. I have overcome the world. The fears of the world, the anxieties of the world, the concerns of the world, all the ways the world can scare you, all the ways the world can try to control you. I'm promising you that you get to have courage in the face of the world because I've overcome the world and you share in my overcoming. You share in my overcoming. And we have this picture in Ephesians chapter 2. So let's read that too. Back to Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, 4 through 7. And he says this to all of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So that here God is, is revealing to us that not only did Jesus overcome not only was Jesus raised above every name, power, and authority, but we get to recognize this. In real terms for day-to-day -day life, this abundant grace includes this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ includes for me being seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father above the world, above every name, every power, every authority, every dominion. And I know we talk about that frequently, and yet the, the recognition, again, is God saying, please learn to think that way. Please learn to talk that way. That even when you're caught by surprise, when, when the world scares you, 
you respond with a remembrance that you are seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father above all the things that the enemy is trying to use to scare you. Above. Now, it's worth remembering, which again, we have talked about many times in, in 1633, Jesus already did promise we would face tribulation. He wasn't saying that the things of the world couldn't impact us or affect us. Our bodies can be affected. Our finances can be affected. Our social situation can be affected. Everything earthly can be affected. And yet one of the things that we're learning and growing in wisdom to recognize is that nothing of my true eternal treasure can be affected. Nothing of my true position. And again, the more we grow in that, the more we recognize, wow, even my peace and joy cannot be broken. Even my delight in the position of love relationship I have with the Father cannot be broken. And we see so many men and women throughout Scripture who faced a horrible moment trusting in God so that their peace and joy was not stolen. And one of my favorite examples is Stephen himself, a man chosen because he was full of the Holy Spirit to be a deacon in the church. And we don't know how much time had passed, but it looks like not too long after he was chosen to be deacon, he was stoned to death because of his testimony for Jesus Christ. And yet in his dying, which had to hurt, you, you can't be stoned to death without an incredible amount of physical pain. That Stephen still glorified Jesus Christ. He still praised Jesus. He still chose Jesus. And God even granted him this grace that he could see Jesus waiting for him. And yet that's the reality of your destiny and my destiny. That we are now eternal in Christ and no one and nothing can steal that from us. And this resurrection that we're celebrating, Jesus is called the first fruits. That in, in 1 Corinthians 15, and we won't go there right now, but in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection. But he's just the first, because you and I will follow him. You and I will follow him in this resurrection as eternal sons and daughters of God. And I want to go back to John 20 as, as we prepare to close. Because again, starting in verse, John 20, starting in verse 29, Jesus says to Thomas, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. That's you and me. That's you and me. We heard the report. The Holy Spirit testified to our hearts, and we believed. But he goes on to say in 30 and 31, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And Jesus even says in, a, in another portion of John that he wasn't just bringing us life. He was bringing us life more abundant. And of all the people on the planet right now, and, and it's amazing how many millions of people in so many nations 
are, are struggling through one battle, that with the coronavirus, the world is almost united in one battle. But we have a different weapon that the world cannot share in. We have the triumph of the king. We own the triumph of the king. It's been granted to us as inheritance. And, and I really pray for myself. I pray for each one of you. I pray for all of us individually and then together as believers. That our thoughts, our prayers, our words, our attitudes, our actions, the things that we choose and do as we go through these battles would reflect to the world that we belong to a king who has already triumphed over the world. It might even prove to be a fact that one of us or some of us succumb to this disease. I'm praying that won't happen. I'm actually trusting that it won't happen. But if it did happen, that would not be our defeat. That part of 1 Corinthians 15 is the sting of death. We even sang this. I hope you were listening to the things we were singing. That the threat of hell and the sting of death is gone because you and I are now eternal in this king that we have trusted in, in this sacrificial lamb that we have trusted in, in this triumphant rising Lord that we have trusted in. We are eternal and we get to think and act and behave and love like sons and daughters of God who know that we are eternal. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that we would comprehend the things that you speak to us. And, and Father, just a glimmer. Every Sunday, every time we read a chapter in the Bible, every time we do a an intense 12-week Bible study, every time we just look into your word, Father, we're just getting glimmers of the truth because your plan is that we spend our whole life growing in these things, that we never settle for what we have, but we keep gaining more. We keep gaining more. And Father, I pray that your spirit would be helping us, that this would be a day of joy that while we're in strange circumstances and we're stuck in our homes and we don't know when things will change and many of us may face really intense financial challenges in the days ahead. Some of us may face the, the threat of illness. But we know this, Father. We face all of that in the triumph of Jesus Christ. Help us to comprehend these things. Help us to share them back and forth as encouragement. Help us to, to look at our lives with fresh eyes of triumph. To look at our challenges with fresh awareness of triumph. Father, not because we're religious fanatics, but because we're sons and daughters of a living God and we see the truth and we live like we know the truth more and more. And Father, I pray that you would give us plenty of opportunity in a variety of ways to encourage others to encourage other believers, but also to offer this triumph and this hope to others who don't know you yet. And Father, if I pray that, that if there's anybody, anybody in our group this morning listening to these words who has never put their faith in Jesus Christ, who has maybe believed in the facts, but never trusted Jesus personally for forgiveness, never trusted Jesus personally to overcome their slavery to sin, never trusted Jesus personally to completely remove the record of their sin 
in perfect forgiveness and the bestowal of righteousness. That your spirit would be speaking to them right now. Father, that they would hear your spirit. You're a tender father. You love us. And I pray that your spirit would make that clear to anyone listening who's never said yes. So that you invite them to say yes today. That they begin the journey of sonship and daughterhood to be yours in Christ for the rest of eternity. And Father, all of us who are believers, we agree on these things together in the name, the majestic, triumphant, powerful name of Jesus. Amen.